Love this church. So excited to be here. My name is Dan Mike. Welcome if you're new and you'd like a formal welcome. If you'd like an informal welcome, I'll fist bump you later. Um, We're going to be studying for the next few weeks from Matthew chapter 1. If you would turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we have some stacks of them laying around. And we used to have uh, people jump up and pass them out. But I've noticed that's kind of been a declining trend. And I was thinking this week as to why. And I think it's when seats became such a hot commodity around here. <laughs> people probably didn't want to maybe potentially lose their chair. So, But I thought about it. If you did lose your chair because you were passing Bibles out to people, that is an honor. That would be a noble uh, sacrifice. So... If you take it upon yourselves in the future, not just because I say so, but because you want to, uh, you know, let's be hospitable to one another. If you have found Matthew uh, chapter 1, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. If you haven't, just look for the blank white page in the middle of the Bible and make it on the left. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Abinadab. Abinadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Sam was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Oeb, Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah, the Hittite's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amon. Amon was the father of Josiah. And Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. Abihud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud is the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Methan. Methan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Thus there were 14 generations, all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. Amen. This is uh, the uh, chapter that we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks. Uh, the, these 17 verses will be kind of the basis for that. Um, and that's our plan to kind of take Advent uh, a little more seriously. Is anybody excited about the season of Advent? 
Advent is the Latin word for to come, and it is a season like Will uh, slipped up and said earlier, like Lent is to Easter, Advent is to Christmas. This is a, uh, a season, the first season on the liturgical calendar, and is designed to help, uh, like all of the seasons are, to help us celebrate something uh, in a more full way. You can miss out on Christmas. You can miss out on Christmas and you can, by not paying close enough attention, and you can miss out on Christmas by paying too much attention. Advent is there, uh, and I kind of am like more into Lent lately, I think because it's a time of shedding, a time of where you deprive yourself from certain things in hopes to arrive at something um, at, at Easter more full and substantial. Some of us just don't do chocolate. That can help, okay? It can, you know, when you, when you don't eat or do certain things, can help you focus on uh, what the goal is when you arrive at Easter, I used to think that all of the holly and the ivy, all the, the, the silver bells and everything used to help us get to Christmas. And it was kind of like me, it was snarky, looking at culture and saying, ha ha, you're helping me understand Christmas more. Uh, and it's a win-win. Nowadays, I'm a little more apprehensive to think that Actually, all the stuff that we do can get in the way of Jesus. Now, before you throw any snowballs at me, it's not, I'm not against Christmas stuff, okay? Brandon's listening to Christmas music from November 1st. We all heard him say that. Okay, that's your thing. But uh, I wonder if uh, all the stuff that we do, it, without it being intentional anymore and just being kind of a pressure, uh, can get in the way of the actual point. Maybe there is a messianic connection to ugly Christmas sweaters and matching footed pajamas and secret Santa and giving other people gifts on Jesus's birth. I don't really understand that still, but I do know if you don't give your wife a present on Christmas, you're a bad person. And so <laughs> that's somehow part of it. You can't miss out on that. And all of the things that we have to be at and whose family for what night and in the morning where are we going to go for the first half of the day and then the travel and the children are crying on the lap of Santa Claus still and this is the things that we had to do during this month. Last year I experienced some something that kind of jaded me where I was trying to do the right thing and do a Christmas party for the college ministry and a Christmas party for the leaders of the college ministry and a Christmas party for the young adults and the Christmas party for the newlyweds and then I went to the staff Christmas party and then I went to my wife's staff Christmas party and then went to her family's Christmas then to my family's Christmas and then we woke up on Christmas morning and I'm like, do you just want to go to the movies? <laughs> I can't do this anymore. There's a difference between a perpetual Christmas and Advent. I personally want to get to a point where I'm asking myself hard questions during Advent that actually uh, produce a heart that is looking at the coming of Christ in a way that's pure and passionate. Why? Because 
if you think about it, our existence, this era, is an epic of Advent in a way. We ought to be looking towards the coming of the Messiah. The more that we can be intentional with the season of Advent, the more likely we are to harmonize with the meaning of the coming of Christ. And the more we do that, the more likely our lives are going to match up to uh, the call that we have to get out there and be Christ and, and point other people towards the coming of Christ. And I want to be not treating it in a trivial way and not taking it too seriously, but when I read about the Magi, as you can see in Matthew 2 verse 7, when they saw that star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a triple joy. <laughs> they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, not because they had stuffed their hearts with all kinds of other stuff or not because they showed up last minute to this stargazing thing, but because they had prepared themselves throughout their kind of Advent lifestyle of looking to the star and saying, when are you going to come? And, and believing that when the Messiah comes, it will be better for everybody. Therefore, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy when they saw the movement and they left their lives and left their families and went to just pay tribute to the king. Stars are moving. Angels are shot. Things are happening in this vibrant, uh, turbulent story that I can sometimes take for granted. It's not granted. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the logos of God, the creator of the moon, humbled himself and did not consider equality with God something to be used as his own advantage, but went into the womb and became the form of a servant and went to the cross for us. The incarnation of Jesus is such a meaningful story. And it's on us to continue to orient our wandering hearts around this the gravity of this event. And so I just want to encourage you to enter into Advent with a little more intentionality, if possible. So Rod, with his uh, gift of leadership, decided that the best way for us to do this would be to read a genealogy. <laughs> okay? Uh, <laughs> I know what you think. These guys have preached on every other verse in the Bible, and this is the only verse left, and so, uh, no. I think I actually have done genealogy before. I can't remember when, but as I was reading, I had a little deja vu, like I'd been in this situation before. Um, I know when I was a kid, to um, mark your Bible with the pen and pencil or with a highlighter was a, a sign that you were kind of in this, that you're like a, a student of the Bible, and, and, and it was a point of pride. I always wanted to flip to the chapters that I had the most marking on so people could see, you know, how fastidious I am. And so uh, I do know, though, that aside from the white piece of paper next to the genealogy, this is the most pristine-looking uh, chapter out of all the Bible. Maybe. I would have like an underline of the name I know or something just to, you know, just to make sure, sure that I actually read it once. 
course then, as I progressed in my years and, you know, started taking more seriously, get into, is there a discrepancy between the one in Luke, and you're checking in the Chronicles, and Jeconiah spelled wrong, and, you know, you're flipping around backwards, and it says the Da Vinci Code on these names, and... <laughs> Barack Obama or whatever, and then all of a sudden you get lost in this fangorn forest of genealogies, and now what? Genealogies meant something to them, okay? And what I want to say right at the beginning is the genealogy actually is a cool idea because the, every single person on this list we have something in common with. Every single person on this list lived in this season of Advent, this now but not yet, this existence of hope that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. Everybody's trying to do right by that. That blank piece of paper I keep talking about actually represents 400 years since the last prophet Malachi spoke. 400 years of waiting for the Messiah to come, for something to happen. It's been a thousand years since David. 1600, if you, the way, however you want to dice it up, from Moses. 2000 from the Middle Bronze period where it's likely that Abraham lived. 2,000 years, we're looking at a list here of people who heard God say, I'm going to do something. How's a way to honor people who try to do right by that promise in a small way, whether they were great or small, whether they were just being mundane and faithful type people? Remember the name. Put the name on a list and look at that name and say, there was somebody who carried on this legacy. It's an honor to look at it. Going all the way back to Abraham in a time where your tribe and your little God is versus every other tribe and their little God and it's an outwit, outplay, outlast situation. Sorry, I'm into Survivor lately. The tribe versus the tribe. And then God spoke to Abraham and he said, Leklaka, Abraham, walk before me and we're going to form a new tribe. Well, who was Abraham to receive this call? He was a nobody. He wasn't anybody. He was somebody that God looked at and said, not the greatest, not the strongest, not the richest, not the wealthiest, but you're somebody that I can use. And that speaks to a lot of nobodies throughout the last 2,000 years where God says that I'm through you not going to be forming a tribe that's going to be over and against all of the other tribes of this world. Actually, I'm forming a new kind of tribe. A tribe that's going to bless, not curse. That's going to seek the blessing of everybody else in this world. Through you, Abraham, through your offspring, I will do this. I promise this in blood. And so Abraham believes that promise, even though he was without child, and he moves forward into that legacy and that calling. And he begat Isaac, and he begat Jacob, and he begat Judah, and the, and the legacy continues of faithfulness, all in this Advent season, looking ahead, wondering, how is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? Where is this going to happen? You fast forward 
to King David. Now this is one of the more significant um, kind of things I'd like to point out about the genealogy. Because there was a new promise that was given to King David. And it was a promise that through his line there would be a king like him. There would be a king like him, okay? So this king, this Messiah, is, is coming through the blessing promise of Abraham, but also is going to be done through as a king. David was a shepherd king. He was humble. He was a man after God's own heart. He would stand up to giants, and he accomplished something that no one had accomplished in Israel up until him, where he fought and protected them from all of their enemies, and then the, the Second Samuel says the land of Israel for the first time was at rest and experienced peace. There's going to be a king like this guy, and he's coming. If you're making a messianic claim, you're starting uh, to write some sort of propaganda about the Messiah and who he is, you better start off with a connection to David. This might be a little bit too in the weeds or not, but the significance then of his cadence of 14 kind of plays into this. In Hebrew, they'll have numbers, okay? Think Roman numerals. It's a letter, but it means uh, a number. So you have A... It will equal one, B will equal two, C will equal three, and then that's how that kind of works, compounds after 11, and so on and so forth. And so, um, if you know the Hebrew alphabet, you can do this. You can just count on your fingers like me. This is how I always count. That's how I learned to count. And uh, you, can, you can add up the letters and their numerical value, and sometimes in the ancient time, they would use that to create words, to create meaning, uh, to send a message. So the Hebrew alphabet goes like this. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit. Dalit is the D, four. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, He, Vav, V. This is the second letter of David's name. D, V, and D in Hebrew, just three letters, David. Six is the numerical value of Vav, and four is the numerical value of, of D, Dalit, so that adds up to 46414. Where's Jeremiah when you need him? Four, <laughs> 14. <laughs> 14 is the numerical value of the name David. Verse 1 says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The 14th name on the list is David. There's three sections of 14. David, what if Matthew is trying to construct this to say at the very beginning, think in your minds, David, David, David. There is a strong connection here and there is a people who are living in a time where they need it. They need a king who's like David compounding issue at the time was they had a king. But he was not from the line of Judah. All right, do you guys know the king Herod the Great, his lineage was Edomian, which Edom, he's an Edomite, which their father is, does anybody know? Esau. Esau is twin brother of Jacob. So not only is he not even Israel, he's not from Jacob, he's not Judah, he's not David, he's from a totally different group. When the 70 elders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, went to Herod to make him aware of this illegitimacy, do you know what happened? He ordered all 70 of them to be put to death. Then he ordered for the records to be burnt. 
It's a real Walt Whitman move, or Walt Whitman. I don't know why I was thinking there. Walter White, that's what I was thinking. This is a real... Eh. Rod referenced The Walking Dead last week, so I was just in this TV analogy thing. Sorry. All right, so... Uh, he burnt the, the, the house of the records, the genealogies. Whoops, now nobody's going to know whose genealogy is what. And, uh, and he continues to cover up his uh, illegitimacy. No surprise then that you read of the violent, tragic acts that he does to the children in Bethlehem uh, here at the beginning of the story. Continuing his pattern of trying to cover up and uh, hide and stop anything that threatens him. The people of this century had a Goliath of a nation uh, oppressing them, who's setting up a Goliath-type leader who's acting uh, out of power like Goliath would have, and they knew in their hearts that we need a David. And they were longing for a David, and here's a voice that we have, the son of David. My question, as I kind of wade into this, is do we know that we need a king, and that that king needs to be like David. I know that Jesus is king is kind of a hot cultural thing to say, thanks Kanye's new album, and I'm not against it. I, I think that's a cool thing. I do would uh, just sort of push it a little bit farther though in this community and say, anybody can say Jesus is king. They nailed that to the cross. They could put a crown of thorns on his head and say, here's your king. But can anybody say, Jesus is my king? And as we walk through Advent, is there a heart in here that needs to say a little bit more, Jesus is my king, and I want to show that to him. Because if he is your king, you will be able to point to things in your life where you say, when push comes to shove, the king has authority over me. I do not have authority over him. I am not wearing this crown. Like the Magi, we bring our valuable things and we lay it at his feet and say, we are here, all that I have is yours. Is there anything in your life where right now you're thinking, this is, I am the king of this in my life? When we surrender our sexuality, our finances, our entertainment, our time, when we surrender our futures and our passions and goals to the king, I mean, we're gonna do that anyways. But are we surrendering it to a king who makes promises like Herod, who treats us with fear and abuses power and makes us feel like we had to keep running on this hamster wheel just to be safe? I'll tell you what, every time I put the crown on, I get nothing but despair, worry, guilt, fear, anxiety. Let's take the crown off and give it to the king who is like David, one who will actually give us rest, one who will actually fight for us, one who can take out the giants that are terrifying us that we will not stand up to. We need a king like David. Will you sign up? Maybe this time in Advent you do need to take a knee and say, Jesus, even more this month, 2019, I am saying you're king in my life in this realm, in this area. Maybe you should write it down. Now, genealogies are not an uncommon thing to find in the first century, but let me tell you what. Genealogies are very uncommon to find the people that are on this genealogy. This is not a common thing to have the women that are referenced and some of the stories that are referenced. Um, 
So let me kind of introduce you to one of the first people of this genealogy that we're going to be looking at who definitely do not belong on this genealogy. <laughs> Look at verse 3. And then Jacob begat Judah and his brothers. Judah begat Perez and Zerah through Tamar. What's Tamar doing on this list? Who knows? Maybe they, you know, maybe not, some of us don't know these stories, but there are just on the outset, there should not be women on a genealogy list in the first century. This isn't a thing. So why would Matthew think that Jesus, when he was writing this, would want this to be there? That's my question. Well, let's think about the story for a minute. The story is found in Genesis 38, Judah and Tamar. It's situated uh, just in between two stories of the story of Joseph, okay? Genesis 37, uh, Jacob's sons, they all take Joseph and sell him into slavery because they're so jealous of him. They purport to Jacob that he died in some violent act with a wild animal, bring his, you know, cloak, they tear it up and put blood on it, all that, whatever. And they give it to Jacob and they say he died. The next chapter, we have Judah, and I don't know, I'm kind of reading into this a little bit, but for some reason or another perhaps guilt, he decides to leave where his family lived, take his flock, take his business, and move out to the coastal plain of Adulam, right near the Mediterranean. Great place to settle down with some sheep if that's what you're doing. He marries a woman, has three sons, Ur, Onan, Sheila. Ur, his firstborn son, marries a woman named Timna, uh, Tamar. Tamar and him Okay, was that no? Oh, I'll read it if you want me to read it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that, that's happened to everybody. Where's Max at? That that's that's fine. We all have phones that speak to us. So Er and Tamar get married, but Er is a wicked person, and he dies. The cultural custom was the nearest brother was to, to look after the wife of his widow, uh, his brother's widow, or look after the widow and take care of her, uh, make sure that she, or, or try and help her to have offspring to take care of her and her vulnerability. Onan does not do this. He actually sees to this not happening and in, in a lot of ways sexually assaults Tamar. He was a wicked man and he also dies. Judah then starts to think, good grief, what's the common denominator here? Of course, it's not my son's wickedness. It must be this woman. And so he looks at his third son. And he's like, I can't risk my third son dying also. And so uh, I'm just going to ghost her. So he tells Tamar, go to your father's house and uh, we'll call you when my son gets a little older and maybe he'll marry you. And then uh, they just never do it. So now what? She's in her vulnerable state and she takes matters into her own hands. She knows that Judah's going to go to Timnah to do a sheep shearing. The annual sheep shearing is happening there. So she goes down and dresses like a prostitute but covers her face so that he doesn't know who she is. And after a long day of shearing the sheep, we all know what happens. So, <laughs> uh, she apparently knew, so then he, uh, he goes and he asks her, do you accept Visa or MasterCard? And she says, no, but I will receive a pledge of your signet ring and your staff until you pay me with a goat. So he goes, he gives that to her. 
He goes and gets a goat and brings it back. She's nowhere to be found. Three months go by and her family notices that she is pregnant. So then they start throwing shade at Judah's family and saying, this is your widow and she's pregnant. She's done stuff that she shouldn't have been doing. So then Judah, Mr. Paragon of moral purity, decides to punish her and says, we're going to put uh, Tamar to death. And in that, in the comings and goings of this conversation, they ask, you know, who is the father of this child? Bonus, it's actually twins. She pulls out the ring and the staff and says, with... I am with child with whom these belong. And then Judah realizes that it's him. This is a major humbling moment for Judah. And I mean, the next time you see him in the story, he throws himself on the line for Benjamin uh, in Egypt. And it's, this seems to have really changed his heart and changed his character and, and humbled him. I mean, he looks at her and, and calls the whole, you know, stoning off and says, she is more righteous than me and does right by her the rest of her life. This is a story of Judah and Tamar, their son, Perez and Zerah. Even in modern day, we know Say you're running for office of some sort of political, you know, a president or something like that. We know. If you're trying to prove that you belong to be in leadership and authority, you're not going to, within the first couple arguments, put a story in there that has things like sexual assault, illegitimate children, prostitution, uh, all this. All, you, you're, these are the things that people try and hide, not put out there in front of everybody. These are the things we call skeletons in the closet where you're just going to, you know, quickly pass over this and not think about it. But even in a time where women are not referenced on genealogies, Matthew goes out of his way to write specifically Judah and Tamar had Perez. And there's something about this story that Matthew knew Jesus would want to be put in there. And so I want to just have two thoughts for you to think about uh, before we go about this story. One of them is this. Apparently, with Jesus being publicly connected to these types of stories in his messianic genealogy argument, Apparently, Jesus is okay being connected to people who have stuff that they're ashamed of. Jesus will never ask you to clean yourself up as best you can before you come to him. He would. If this genealogy had kind of been missing the hard parts and, and kind of was scrubbed tidy, they deleted certain things out of the history so that, that you can't see it, and this is like this perfect tidy thing, maybe, maybe you could say that Jesus would uh, not be so happy with our truth and our history and our uh, failures. But apparently, he is okay with everything you can throw at him, so much so that he would enter into this family. And if you think right now that you do not belong in this family, you should, you, should, you should ask yourself, who told me that? Who told you that, that you should feel uncomfortable in the family of God if you have a scarlet letter, if you have a spot that you just for the life of you cannot clean? This is 
the family that you belong in. Not because we have the best ways of, of hiding things, but because we have somebody who says, no matter what you did, I can wash you clean. There are people in this world, maybe in this room, but there are definitely people that we need to talk to who, who walk around with this legacy of Judah and Tamar and think that they cannot get clean of their reputation. We live in such a harsh culture where the digital things are so permanent that we put out there. So many young people have passed along things that they're ashamed of and embarrassed, but that will always kind of be out there and they can't get it back. I mean, there's uh, pictures and videos and things being passed around where uh, at any moment people can just expose you, expose what you did, expose your, your shame or, and, and give you some guilt. Do you need to hide who you are and what you've done? I'm not saying do we need to condone who we are and what we've done, but I'm saying in this family, do you need to hide the things that you feel ashamed about yourself at? Do you need to hide the stuff that you've done? And do you believe that Jesus, no matter how deep that pain is, and, and that he can wash it clean? Because I believe in a king like David who can resurrect all the broken families of this world who can, like Will said earlier, whose arm is not too short for any of us to be able to be brought back into this family. I believe that Jesus is someone who has the ability to wash you clean. And if you haven't come to him and spoken all of your truth to him and laid, been vulnerable, laid bare before him, yet in your life, he has earned your trust. He is not embarrassed by you, and he will and is faithful and just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Let me say it again. He is faithful and just to cleanse you. Second and last thing that I'd like to say this morning is this. What about Perez? Perez in Hebrew, this word means to break through. Breakthrough. It's really been kind of the underpinning prayer that I've been praying for you all week is that there would be a breakthrough. There would be a breakthrough this Advent in any of our lives. Specifically, as I look at this child, Perez, who is in the line of Christ, the first thing that I think about him is that this would be considered by us an illegitimate child. And there's a word going around in this culture that says, if you have anything about you that would be illegitimate, you're unusable, you're damaged goods, you're always going to be broken, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, you're in this forever. Illegitimacy, out of all the negative things that I could feel, you know, on a regular basis, would be probably the most common thing that I feel. You know, being a, a pastor at this church and just looking in the mirror. <laughs> you guys know me. <laughs> I definitely don't look in the mirror and say, I belong here. <laughs> what do you do with that feeling of illegitimacy? I mean, even Christ himself was viewed as an illegitimate child. He knows this feeling. And I want to challenge the voice that says to anybody, you are unusable because of something that causes you to be illegitimate. Bring yourself before the Lord and ask him to tell you the truth about who you are. As we talk about Jesus being king, what does the king say about you? 
and let the king be the king. And let him say, you belong in my family because I say so. I have washed you, I have paid for you, I've purchased your adoption, and I want to see you here. There's nothing that can stand in the way of you being used by God in this kingdom, by the king of this kingdom. And I want to pray for a breakthrough for anybody here who feels that they have some sort of thing that's holding them back, that today and this month be the month where you start to break through that and say, no, Jesus gives me my validation. For me, it started with a prayer that I started praying years ago. God, show me how you see me. And so let's just start there and pray this morning. Father in heaven, as we move forwards in Advent, as we move forwards in trying to reorient our hearts around your story uh, of redemption and resurrection in this world, Teach us how you see us. Teach us your passion for us and who we are to you. Show me how you love me. Show me how to love myself. If there's any of us here who feel like they could um, take one step forward towards you being the king, if there's any of us here who feel like they, they uh, have been wearing the crown in certain areas of their life, but you deserve it, I pray that you convict them to lay the crown down before you, to cast their shiny object of uh, validation and authority towards you, just like the Magi. If there's any of us here who feel like we uh, have this just legacy of shame and guilt that we can't get rid of. I pray that you would teach him about your ability to wash him whiter than snow. If there's any of us here who feel like because of some sort of uh, reason we're illegitimate and we don't belong here, and I pray that your voice be calling, uh, just break through that and call them your children or show, show us that we are your children and we belong here. We belong on this list of the ones who are in the line and family of Christ. Amen.
All right, let's pray as we go. Jesus, you're our champion. You're our example. We're so proud of you. We're proud to bear your name. We're proud to bear your gospel out into this city and into this world. We receive your uh, protection and your, your promise to watch over us. We receive the favor that you've given, uh, that your face shines upon us and gives us blessing and encouragement like a father smiling at a child. We receive the countenance that you lift upon us since before we were born, when you knit us together in our mother's womb and you created good works for us to do uh, in this world. And we receive them with peace and we take the peace that you give us and bring it into our families during this holiday season. We bring your peace your glad tidings into this city and into our workplaces as we, um, as we interact with everyone this month. Thank you for this legacy and for this calling as we go. Amen.